Welcome home. Welcome to Northridge. My name is uh, Daniel. I get the opportunity to teach uh, God's Word today as we're in week two of a sermon series that we've called When Life Hits Hard. Um, Last week, our Webster campus pastor, uh, Nate Miller, uh, delivered the talk, and he kind of gave us this uh, framing of a theology of pain or a theology of trials or suffering, and that God, in the midst of all of our pain, is at work. That he is not the source of it, but he's using it to make us look more like him. He taught us from James chapter 1, a wonderful uh, scripture passage on that. But also, um, he gave a great illustrations of talking about how our pain can be like a chisel in our life to how God uses it to shape us and mold us to look more like him. And that's all great and all, but most of us, if you're in the midst of pain, those are encouraging words, but... When you look at the reality of maybe if you think about a linear timeline of the start of your suffering, whenever that trial, that suffering starts to the end of the timeline, whenever there's light at the end of the tunnel and you're exiting your pain, this space in between, what do we do with it? How do we respond? What do we do in this massive gap in between the start of our trial and the end of our pain? Because we're not oblivious or naive to the fact that thinking that you're at church because you have your life all together, right? None of us are. We don't, we don't have that. We have pain. We've experienced it in our life or we will experience or we have experienced or we are experiencing it in some way. In the midst of that messy middle of the beginning of our pain and the end of our pain, what do we do? In the Old Testament book of Job could be said it's all about pain. And there's one verse that I want to read before we kick off uh, into our other primary passage. In Job 14.1, he talks like this. He says, mortals born of woman are few of days and full of trouble. (laughs) He says that our days on this earth, they may be short and man, they may be rough. Is essentially what Job tells us in that. He says that our days are going to be full of trouble and short Wow, that's encouraging today. Aren't you glad you came to church? (laughs) But what's unique about suffering and interesting about it is there's two things that I want to talk about. One is that we all have suffering. We can all kind of link arms together and, and reminisce about the fact that we all have trials. We all have pain. We all have heartache and heartbreak in our life. But what's really interesting about the other side of suffering, the other side of pain, if you will, is yet we all have it, it's all unique to us individually. That one person's pain may not be another's. And just because someone suffers differently than you doesn't mean their suffering is greater than or less than yours. But it just means that we all suffer and all of our suffering is unique to us. Some of the ways that we suffer in our life is you may be suffering right now, have suffered or will suffer because the loss of a loved one that they've passed on from this life to the next. And that hurts. You may be suffering because maybe you're getting a little older or maybe it's not age, but your body just seems to be failing you and it's not doing the things it once did. And that's not, you're not dealing with it well. Maybe you're suffering because of your mental health. Maybe you're suffering because of a relationship that you thought would be in existence in your life for a very long time is now over because the other person wants nothing to do with you anymore. And that doesn't make sense. Like, why is this happening? I don't understand. It's not good. Or maybe you're suffering because of a sin struggle in your life that you can't seem to kick that sin and 
It's causing pain in multiple other areas of your life. The point is, is that we all suffer. That we all have these things in our life that cause us heartache, that cause us pain. But the question is, is what do we do with it? How do we engage our pain? And this is really foreign language to most of us Westerners, right? As, uh, being in the United States, like we don't, we don't respond to pain. We actually, we do. We respond all exactly the same way. Just avoid it. Like, don't think about it. Push it over there to the corner of your life. And if you forget about it long enough, it'll go away. Or turn on Netflix. Let's just binge more episodes of whatever. Or let's get the tub of Ben and Jerry's out. Like, let's eat our feelings. Like, or we turn to maybe less popular vices like a bottle of wine or a bottle of whiskey. Or, heck, this is probably the most popular one. Let's open up social media because exactly what you need in your lowest is to look at everybody else's highlight reel. That'll work. You're giggling because it's probably true that you do that. And so in the midst of all of it, though, is how do we actually engage our pain in a helpful, practical, and biblical way? When Rena and I, uh, Rena's my wife, when we first got married, there was something that happened in our family that wasn't directly something we did, but f- affected us very dramatically and caused a lot of pain and hurt in other relationships. And so we went to a Christian counselor and began to process it and dialogue with it out loud of how it impacted us individually and even our marriage. And um, I remember this couple said this to us, and it's been said to us multiple ways uh, in, different, in different phrases, but essentially it's like this. It's when you push things down, they come out sideways. When you push things down, they'll come out sideways. And essentially what they were trying to get across to us in their life, that what you're doing is good by dialoguing about this and talking about this, because when you don't, when you do the avoiding, when you eat your feelings, when you do all these other things, when you bury it in your life, when you bottle all this up, it's going to affect you. And it's going to affect other areas of your life. You just don't know when or how that explosion is going to occur and it's going to come out sideways and cause a wreck in your life. Like, but it will happen. And so what I want to encourage us to do this morning and as you navigate pain, maybe that currently exists in your life or will exist in your life, is to navigate pain like a bison. You did not see that coming, okay? Navigate pain like a bison. I had to bring up the bills somehow because we don't get to celebrate them today, okay? And so, um, anyways, that's neither here nor there. But um, I was reading this article a couple of weeks ago, and don't ask why I read articles like this or where I found it, but just hang with me, okay? Um, And it was talking about how uh, psychologically in the Midwest, in kind of the plain region of the United States where there's herds of bison and herds of cattle, how cattle and bison respond differently to storms, not heartache storms in their life, but like literal physical storms, like a snowstorm or a thunderstorm. And they've observed, they have no clue why this is true or not, but they've observed this to be true. When a a cow senses a storm coming up, whether it's a thunderstorm or a snowstorm, whatever the case would be, kind of in the Midwest and the Plain region of the United States, they, they acknowledge it and then they turn around and run the exact opposite way. They get away from it. Makes sense, right? Like if we were seeing a storm brewing, you, you, your gut reaction would be like, let's go that way. Like you, you'd say, let's get out of there. Let's run the opposite way. But what logically ends up happening is as this cow is, as these cattle are running away from, here's the storm, running away from the storm, it just tracks with them. And they actually end up staying in the storm longer. 
And they, they wait until they get exhausted and they, until they have to lay down to recover because they're out of breath, they're out of energy, and they can't run any longer, which causes them to stay in the storm way longer than if they would just have stood still or went towards the storm. But a bison responds to a storm differently. For whatever reason, they have no clue why this happens and why this is true, but a bison will actually turn and address the storm and charge it like it's attacking the storm. Like it's like, oh yeah, you coming at me? Watch out, here I come. And then they, they run and they charge at it like they're coming after the storm. And what ends up happening is they just run through the storm, they get to the other side way faster, they're not out of breath, they're not exhausted, they don't have to fall over uh, with exhaustion. And so that's what ends up happening in their life. So my encouragement to us is we need to address our trials, our suffering in our life like a bison, like a bison who turns, acknowledges that it's actually there first, and then presses towards it and allows God to work in the midst of it. And so that working is called lament. And we'll talk about lament in a minute, but before we get there, we need to correctly frame up our conversation about who God is in the midst of it. Reminding ourselves of what Nate taught us last week of these three truths about who God is and how he engages us in the midst of our suffering. Because if we don't understand that rightly, we'll suffer poorly. When we have bad theology of who God is or how he engages our pain, and we don't understand that correctly, it'll lead us down the wrong path to suffer poorly in our lives. And so you need to understand this, that God sees you. That's the very first thing you need to know, that that's a biblical truth, that God sees you. He knows who you are and where you're at, whether you're in the midst of pain, starting pain, or coming on the other side of pain, that when you turn from your sins and placed your faith in Jesus, God knows those who are his. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, there's a phrase that says this, the Lord knows those who are his. He knows you. He sees you right where you're at, right now, in this moment, and he's always seen you. And the second truth is this, that God hears you. In the midst of your pain, you're talking uh, to him and all the suffering that may be in existence in your life. He not only knows you, he not only sees you, but he hears the cries of your heart. In the book of Exodus chapter 3, God's talking to Moses uh, about going back to the land that he left to talk to the people and lead them out of, of slavery. And the Lord says this to Moses. He says, I have seen, indeed seen the misery of the people, my people in Egypt. I've heard their crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. God not only knows us, not only sees us, not only hears us, but he also cares. The third thing you need to understand is that God cares for you. Because for us, it's like, okay, that's great that God sees me. That's great that God hears me. But my experience is that maybe he just doesn't care then. He's not seeming to move and do anything in the midst of my suffering. It, may, it must be that God doesn't care. No, you need to understand that God does care. In 1 Peter 5, 7, it says this. It says, cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That we need to realize these three truths about who God is and how he acts towards us in the midst of our suffering. That he sees us, he knows us, he hears us, and he cares for us. And so with that in mind, we address our pain. We lament. I'm going to give you a big and wordy definition of what lamenting is, and then we'll unpack it together. To lament biblically is a statement of faith. Lamenting is an honest cry of a hurting heart that is wrestling 
with a paradox of pain and the promises of God's goodness. That's a wordy definition because I felt like every word was necessary, that it's a statement of faith. It's honesty. It's crying out from a hurting heart that's in the middle of this paradox of this is what I'm experiencing, yet I trust the goodness of God. But what do I do with that? Well, we lament. And Mark Vogrop in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, gives this fourfold function of lament that I'm going to lean on. But also he points out that it's just in the Psalms, that the Psalms were the prayer book of the early followers of God. And they should be no different to us today, that we turn to the Psalms to look at how we can address God in the midst of our pain. We're going to be in Psalm 13 for the entirety, the rest of the message today. And so I'm going to pick it apart verse by verse and show you how each Step in this four-step function of biblical lament is in Psalms, um, in the Psalms. Also down deeper in your notes, if you're watching uh, and tuning in with the Northridge Notes app, there's a whole list of all the personal Psalms that I included in there from each chapter. So Psalm 13, verse 1, says this. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? This is a Psalm of David, and the first thing we see that he does is he turns to God. So biblical step lament number one is to turn, to take our eyes from another source in the midst of our suffering and fix them on God and to fix them on Jesus. We see David turning his eyes off of his situation and not avoiding his situation, not forgetting about his situation, but fixing his eyes on Jesus in the midst of his situation. And and notice what he says. He says, how long, Lord? We know exactly who David is talking to, and we see his situation, how he feels in the midst of it. These two phrases, these next phrases, he says, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? Because this is what it feels like. I want you to hear the honesty in David's voice. That he is honest with God that what it feels like is that God has forgotten him. What it feels like is that he's turned his back on him. And God does not care. That's how the opening verse of Psalm 13 feels. But then we progress. Verse 2. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? You notice there that in David, what he did is ask multiple questions, which is why biblical step uh, lament number two is to ask We ask God, why is this happening? Why is this going on? I don't understand. All these questions are appropriate questions of wrestling. David says, how long do I have to wrestle in sorrow and heartbreak day after day? How long must I watch my enemy have triumph over me? How long, God? How long? Notice the tone and the honesty in all of this. That David turns to God and he is talking directly to God. But I I don't want you to pass over this that we can just flippantly come to God. That's not the point because we should come to God humbly recognizing that he is God and we are not. But in David's approach, we see some humility that he's just saying, God, how long? How how long do I have to live in the midst of this? But yet in his humility, he's still honest. He's not painting this picture with roses like, it's all good, God. I'll suffer as long as you need me to. No, he's honest in the sense of like, God, this is not good. And he's a little bit of complaining going on. He said, how long must my enemy have triumph? 
How long will you allow this to happen to me, God? Why, God? Are you serious, God? I don't like this. You see, David complained, but he didn't stop at complaint. What I want to just drop a note, and Tuesday our podcast will release, and a little better, where we talk about where does complaining go wrong in the midst of lament that you can turn, tune into if you so choose. But now the commercial is over. Back to verse 3. All right. Verse 3, David progresses from turning, asking, to verse 3 where he says this, Look on me and answer. Lord my God, give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Biblical lament step number three is to request. We see David moving. I want you to notice this progression that David does. As he turns to God, he's addressing God directly. He's asking God questions of why is this happening? How long must this happen? I don't know what to do next. Like, God, what is going on? But then he moves from his complaint to ask God to work. In verses 3 and 4, he says, God, look to me and give me an answer. Give light to my eyes. He's saying, God, I need you to move because if you don't move, I'm going to die. If you don't move, if you don't show up, my enemy's going to get the victory, the ultimate victory of my death, and they will triumph. Do you want that to happen? God, I need you to do what only you can do. I need you to act. I need you to move. God, show up in this moment. I need you because my hope, my comfort, my triumph is found nowhere else but you. God, move. Notice he doesn't stop in his complaining. He moves past his complaining to ask God, to beg God, to do what only he can do. He turns to God. He doesn't avoid his, tr- his pain. He doesn't stuff it in the corner. He's, he's talking to God. He's pouring out his heart, telling God it feels like he's abandoned him. He's asking God questions. How long must this happen? But then he makes requests. He says, God, move in the midst of it. God, do something in the midst of this. But then notice the last turn, the turn that's, I feel like, the sharpest, in my opinion, in verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Biblical lament step number four is to trust. You see, if I'm being honest, when I read this chapter for the very first time, I was like, I don't think verses five and six belong in this chapter. And if you're just following along on maybe the Northridge Notes app where it's kind of separated, you're like, oh, he pulled that from another chapter in the Bible. But no, this is David's progression. This is David's prayer that he has to land in trust. And it's not David undercutting his prayer like Christians so often do where they pray out to God. They pour out their heart of request and they say, but your will be done. No, it's this honest cry of a hurting heart and this paradox of he's in pain. He's asking God to move, but he knows God's good. And he knows how God chooses to act in this moment. He still will be good no matter how he chooses to act. So he trusts him. He trusts him with the length of time that he's going to have to live in this pain. He trusts him with what may come. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices at your salvation. 
because you have been good to me. You see, biblical lament is turning to God. It's asking him all these honest, heartfelt questions that sometimes we're just afraid to get out of our mouth. And yet, it's moving past that to make a request to God saying, God, I need you to move. It's asking God specific enough prayers that he can either be celebrated or let us down. Because he didn't do the thing we wanted. But yet, in the midst of all of that, it's landing in trust. Because we know the character of God. That's why in that definition of lament, it's wrestling with the paradox of pain and the goodness of God's promises. But yet, we lament. We lament. We pour out our heart. And I'll admit, this is foreign language to us because that's what what we want to do with our pain is stuff it over there in the corner and like, let's just not talk about this, okay? But we also lament not only because it's a model in the Psalms, not because David did it, because it was one of the ways Jesus prayed. Lamenting was one of the ways Jesus communicated to his heavenly Father. We see Jesus lamenting over people, over death, over cities, over other people's sin, and even lamenting on the cross. While Jesus hung on the cross, he quoted Psalm 22.1, which is a psalm of lament, where Jesus pours out his heart to his Father, where it feels like God the Father has abandoned him. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wrestles with this paradox of God's goodness in the midst of his pain. And in Hebrews chapter 5, the author of Hebrews gives us this beautiful picture of what Jesus, during the days on, his earth, on earth, how he prayed, how he poured out his heart. He says this, Hebrews 5 verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus lamented. Jesus cried out. Jesus poured out his heart before a holy, perfect, and loving God. But yet he was obedient to everything God the Father asked. And because of his obedience, he is the source of eternal life for all who believe in him. And we get the opportunity as modern day Jesus followers to come boldly and straight direct access to God the Father through our prayers because of Jesus. Because of his perfect life, death, and resurrection that we have access to God the Father in the midst of good times and in the midst of suffering. So my request to you is as we wind down this morning, our bands are going to come. Our prayer team is going to be down front. They can begin to move now even to come and lament. Come and cry out to God in the midst of your hurting heart with someone else to come to pray, to do that fourfold process. We didn't get the opportunity to talk today about, well, how long do I need to lament for? As long as it takes. It may be one time. It may be daily for the rest of your life. It may be for a season. But we lament because God has granted us access through his son to come to him boldly and confidence because of who he is and what he's done.